0: Our scripture reading this morning is Luke 7, Luke 7, verses 36, verse, Luke seven thirty six through chapter 8, verse 3. That can be found on page 1099 of your Pew Bibles. We will be reading to chapter 8, verse 3, and what's included there is a list of some of the women accompanying Jesus. And though a bit of a separate textual unit from what we'll look at this morning, it relates to it as the followers of Jesus seen in the women of our text, as well as these women that follow him. That's why we will include the first three verses of chapter 8. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask that the intent of this text, why you have included it in your infallible and errant inspired word, would not be lost on us, that we would see the truth of Jesus' lesson as well as the example of this dear saint, of this dear woman whose name we know not, and yet presents to us much that we should learn from, much that we can see and heart and wish to to copy and emulate in our own life. Lord, this is our desire. We desire this not that we might just be more obedient, that we might look better to others, but rather that we might please you and glorify your great name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before reading, I do want to just highlight that. As we read, try to think of this wonderful picture this woman Presents to us saints and presents to all around her. It's, it can get lost as we know the story and in just the reading of it. Don't let this be lost. This is a tremendous picture of love that this woman portrays to, to Jesus Christ and to all of us. Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he, when he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the, anointment, with the ointment." Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, married called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others, who provided for them out of their means. Thus ends the reading of God's word. People of God, directors... Authors, writers, whatever whatever means they're using like to use twists or cliffhangers, they're like to use an unexpected part of the story to grab your attention. And that's true of what we see in books and TV shows and movies and everything else. In fact, the hallmark of a, a binge worthy TV show is that it always leaves you wanting more, and the way it seeks to do that is to have twists and turns. The unexpected happens. Now, a good writer will not overuse this, and it would become just a a desire to manipulate the audience's attention span and continue to provide twists just to keep them interested. A good writer would rather have these twists mean something, and a great writer will actually have these twists produce a point. Even something that's meant to cause us to stop and be so surprised and be so so taught by this twist and turn that we would actually seek to change something. And that's what you see in this text. What do I mean? Jesus has done something amazing here and amazing to us, the reader. As you're reading this text, what you find is a desire to magnify your own sin. What do I mean? Rather than relating to Simon, this respectable Pharisee, this wealthy man who seems to have it all together, by the end of this story, you would like, hopefully, to see yourself not with him, but rather with this woman who is repeatedly described here as a sinner or who had a sinning past. And though a human heart, in its default mode, tries to minimize our sin, tries to push it away, tries to say, it isn't so bad, I didn't do that, my debt isn't as great as you say, that's what a human heart desires to say. Well, the twist here is so amazing that if you grasp the meaning of this text, a believer doesn't desire that. You don't actually desire to minimize your sin, you actually desire to magnify it. Why? Because the whole point that Jesus is saying is, if you see the depth of your sin and what you're forgiven, you love more. And so we almost do this twist where those who would start and be like Simon and want to say, no, no, we're not like that. And if we're grasping the point, say, oh, actually, yeah, I am pretty bad, and here's why. It's not to make light of sin, it's to understand the depth of it To understand what Christ has done. And this text also wonderfully presents us with two examples. One is a saint who we cannot deny gets it. One who is able to show faith and love that is an example to the whole community, and one who doesn't get it. One who sees that they don't respect Jesus, they don't love him. What's interesting is that this woman doesn't say one word in the text. She doesn't speak at all. Yet this is one of those cases brilliantly put here in the Gospels when actions speak louder than words. And she doesn't need to say a thing. She doesn't need to say one word for us to grasp so much about her and a lesson to be learned from her and her love and devotion and the honor that she places on her Savior. And we'll see that as we go through. First, we'll look at the scene and setting, the scene and setting of this this meal, this feast. First, we'll look at the host, Simon. The host, Simon. Jesus invite is invited to the house of this Pharisee, who is Simon. And we're told that he invites Jesus there, and we're left to guess about Simon's intentions. Why has Simon invited Jesus? He is a Pharisee, and up to this point in Luke, the Pharisees haven't really been painted in, a, in a, an honoring way. And so should we take Simon and what he's doing here as, as somewhat of a, a, an undercurrent to desire to trip Jesus up? Is that what's going on? Is his desire there negative towards Jesus and not loving? Is, is that what Simon has done here? There are those who take it many different ways. I don't think that's the best way to take it. I think what you see from the text is a Pharisee who wants to see Jesus for himself. He wants to, to, uh, to judge Jesus for himself, and so he seems to portray an element of honor to Jesus. He calls him teacher in the text. He invites him as a guest of honor And so there doesn't seem to be this negative way about him. But you do, I think, see his doubt as well as the reason he's called Jesus when he questions and says, this must not be a prophet. It occurs when this woman touches Jesus and through this scene. And Simon says he must not be a prophet or he would know this woman and who's touching him. And so it would seem then that Simon called this banquet, invited Jesus to come so that he could see, is he really a prophet? Is he everything he's cracked up to be? Now, what about the seeming dishonor that he doesn't provide the the, the foot cleansing and the anointment and the kiss and these things? It's hard for us to say today just how normal those activities were. Was it required at every feast? Did that take place? Some say yes, some say no, that was not required. And so we, we shouldn't necessarily say by the, by the very fact he didn't do these things, it meant he was clearly trying to dishonor Jesus. But we can certainly say that he was not trying to do all he could to honor Jesus. He was not doing everything. He was not going the extra mile to provide that honor and show his respect of Jesus that he could have. So what we see is one questioning with doubt, and likely a doubt expecting a negative answer, expecting to see in Jesus something he actually disagreed with. And that's, that's where Simon is coming from. Now, a few words about the meal itself. The context indicates that this was a large meal, more like a banquet. And in these larger meals of the day, they would recline at the table, they would lean on their left elbow, their feet would be spread out behind them as they were towards the table in a circle. And this explains why the woman was able to have such access to his feet. This is not a comical scene, like this woman's crawling underneath the table or something. The feet were quite accessible out behind. And the nature as well of these banquets were such that they were open to the public. And that's important as well. It's not as if you can think you had this small party at your home and then in walks this notorious sinner and she just opens the door and comes in. That's not the case. Usually these meals were held outside in a courtyard and the public could enter. They would sit or stand around the circle. They would observe the conversations. They would listen to them. Maybe they would get some of the leftovers. So many were expected to come in to these larger banquets and parties. It's not a surprise, then, that this woman was there. It's not a surprise to Simon, even, that this woman could be in attendance. But what is a surprise is the way this woman intrudes into this circle, intrudes into their banquet, into this family party. And so we see in this scene and setting the host Simon, but now let's look at this intruding woman, this intruding woman. She's unnamed. And as I already said, she doesn't say a single word here. She's called by Luke, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Simon calls her a sinner. Jesus himself says that her sins were many. This woman was a known sinner. Many try to speculate, what was her sin. What was this sin? And the most common guesses, and they could be very accurate, were some kind of adultery or likely some kind of prostitution, but we don't know that, and quite frankly, we don't need to know the nature of the sin itself, but that she was a great sinner, and everyone knew it. Everyone knew her identity. Everyone knew that she wasn't accepted in that sense, not that she couldn't attend a banquet, but she wasn't accepted by those. There wouldn't be friendship or fellowship there. She would be pushed aside. She'd be ignored. This was an outcast of the society. She was a sinner and a grave sinner at that. That's the identity of this woman, but is that all we know about her? No. We start seeing the beauty of her actions, the beauty of her love in what she does here by coming first to a Pharisee's house who clearly would have no place to accept her. Stand along the outside, but don't you dare come and touch any of my guests. Don't you dare come into this presence. That would be Simon's thought. Yet this woman who knows that everyone knows her past, doesn't let that keep her from coming. And why? What does the text say? When she heard that Jesus was there, this is what she did. What this starts to show you about this woman's character is that she cared more for the love that she had for Jesus and the honor with which she wanted to bring Jesus' name than she did for her own reputation. And brothers and sisters, you can be assured, her reputation would have been one that was scorned. Think of the worst sins you've ever done. And pretend that there is a party where everyone knows them, knows every detail about them, and doesn't accept you. Right? It's not like God who knows all of our sins and forgives us. The people at this party who would know your sin would be the ones who would mock you because of them. That's the type of of group who knows the deepest Depths of these sins you've done. Now think, would you go to that party and attend it and do such an a, a action, so, so open, so clear, where you would publicize yourself, you'd be putting yourself before everyone and, and hear their mockery, hear their gasps at what you're about to do. That would likely keep many from, from doing this. Public fear, fear of what others would think of you. But she has been so forgiven by Christ, her love for him is so great, that that doesn't stop her. In other words, she will bear their scorn for her Savior. A beautiful picture. So we see that. We also see that she was willing to place herself... In this this path of public scorn, because she loved Jesus, yes, and then through that we can gather that she likely had had a prior contact with Jesus. This doesn't seem to be her first time either meeting him or hearing him, Remember, her reason for going was that she knew he was there. This means she had either heard or been in contact with him before, and it also very likely means that she already believed and had already put faith in Jesus. The actions of this woman is not one who's coming to get to gain repentance. She doesn't make a request. She doesn't come before Jesus to say, Forgive me, Savior, of my sins. There is no request made. This seems to be an action fully to express her love to Jesus to honor his name, and so she likely already believed before even coming to this party. Jesus may well have known her already and had that contact with her. The text seems to indicate that by what isn't said, by what she doesn't do. You see the the depth of her love, too, in her tears. And what these tears are described, it's not like she had just wet eyes. It's not like her eyes got a little misty. The the word used here in the original language is that these tears were like fountains. They were flowing from her eyes, enough that the text could actually say she wet his feet with her tears. She was deeply emotional, likely a mixture of joy and sorrow that we find even in our own hearts for a sinful past wiped away by Christ. Again, this doesn't seem as if she's doing this so that she could be forgiven. It's rather an expression of this thanksgiving and honor and love to Christ himself. And you see the depth of her emotions there as as the tears pour from her face. That's another thing we likely wouldn't do, especially in our context, which isn't a good one. We don't show emotions. We think it's bad to show emotions. We think we should hide these things, and we do that too much, quite frankly, But even so, any one of us would would find it difficult to have this amount of emotion be pouring from us in in a circle of hostile people, those around us who would scorn us. This woman was performing an act from a heart that showed love, and now, adding to that, she brings this ointment or this perfume, which would have been likely, if not her most expensive, her most valuable possession, one of them. And she pours it all over Jesus' feet. So then look at this loving picture. She's willing to bear the shame of the entire community. She's willing to part with significant wealth on the feet of this person, this man, her Savior. Normally, what that would be done in that day and age, if you would anoint the feet at all, you would use olive oil. It's much more common. Much less expensive, that's what you would use, but that's not good enough for her. She takes likely what was her savings, or her most valuable possession, and uses it up right then and there. What a heart of love. Now, we might think, that's, that's foolish, you shouldn't do that, but she gets it, she understands who's in front of her. And she counts it worthy enough to put her most valuable possession on his feet as just a small token of the honor and love that she has towards Jesus. She's so overcome with emotions, she kisses his feet, she cries and dries his feet with her hair. There's a lot of disagreement as to what letting down your hair in that circle in that day and age meant. We have a lot of information on it. It meant a lot of different things. It could mean some kind of sexual connotation. It could be seen as immodest. It could be seen as scornful. One commentator even says it could be seen as scandalous as going out in public without clothes, something like that. That that's how scandalous it would be for a woman to let down her hair. But it also could mean other things in the broader context of that day. It could be a mark of mourning, or it could be a mark of great great respect and honor to a deity. How are we to take this? Was she doing something immodest? I wouldn't die on this hill, but I I don't think the text gives us an indication that this was perceived as being that type of scandal. The reason I would say that is Simon's response. Simon's response doesn't seem to be one that critiques her action per se as much as the identity of the one doing it. Remember, he's saying, Jesus should know that this is a sinner. How could he allow her to touch him? And so it doesn't seem as if he's he's aghast at the very fact that Jesus would allow this this action to even be done to him. Rather, it's the one doing it. So I don't think we need to take it as if it was as scandalous as that, but we should see that this was a mark of incredible humility, that she would let down her hair. 1 Corinthians 11.15 describes the hair of a woman as her crown, her glory, her beauty. So she lets that down and wipes the feet So here's this picture. This is what one commentator says. In a gesture of abject devotion, she stoops and lets down her hair, her crown, and glory to wipe the dirt caked feet, now soaked with oil and tears. The woman's low reputation makes her unwelcome by a hostile company. The offensive nature of feet in this society makes her actions even more significant. The ultimate insult to a vanquished enemy is to make an enemy a footstool. The lowest slave was the one who had to clean feet. And it wouldn't even be an Israelite. It would be a Gentile of the lowest order who would be called to wash someone's feet. John the Baptist, remember, says to express how unworthy he is of the coming Messiah, says he can't stoop down and unlatch his sandal. That's how unworthy John the Baptist is. Well, look at what this woman does. She takes her very soul, her very self, and comes before him, uses her own tears to wash his feet, uses her own hair, her crown of glory, to wipe them, and takes all of her wealth and pours them on his feet. This is why... Though the woman is unnamed, she remains in the gospel as a as an example of such love, of such obedience, and of such faith. This is an action of faith. This is an action of a follower of Christ who gets his identity and gets what's been done for her and her debt. It's a beautiful picture. And then we see Jesus' lesson. This is our second point, Jesus' lesson, this parable. The woman's identity, Jesus' inaction, leads Simon to conclude he must not be a prophet. Simon then shows something about his own heart. He's afflicted with that all-too-common fallen condition of human pride. Because what is Simon saying? He doesn't think Jesus is wrong or in danger to come into his house and to endure his touch. But he is to receive this woman's touch. Simon thinks he's far more righteous, far more able to receive that. In fact, by his actions, he's thinking that God himself, through a real prophet, would have nothing to do with this sinner. That, that God himself has no right, has no part in such a life. And by implication, he's also saying, but God should have a part to play in my life. In my friend's life, we're the holy ones, we're the saints, not this sinner. So he's afflicted with that, that pride and self-righteousness that, that doesn't let him even see what's going on right in front of him. Whether he thought that her touch would make one ceremonially unclean or just the mere association with one such as her was shameful, we don't know. Likely it was Both. No real prophet could allow this. And so Jesus responds to the parable. Very simple parable, incredibly effective and simple, and incredibly, that twist that we were talking about in the beginning of the story, he so turns it on him that you see and you hear in Simon's answer that he gets that he's been cornered. Well, I, I guess the one who's been forgiven more. It's like, are, are, you, are you crazy? Of course it's that one. And he has to admit it, but he says, well, I, I guess That's the one who's been forgiven more. That's the one who will love more. It's such a simple lesson. He who is forgiven more loves more. And if you don't think you've been forgiven that much, you're not going to love the person that well. You're not going to have that great of love for them. Simon's issue, and quite often our, our issue that we fight against, is that we see our debt so small. We see it as, as, as like someone picked up our dinner bill. And, you know, you might say to someone who did that, oh, thanks, that was very nice of you. That's great. But to the one who, who paid off all of our debts, student loans, house mortgages, credit card debts, whatever there could be, paid it all off, would we just say, you know, that was nice of you. Thanks. Or would you have so much respect and love and, and devotion to, to this person? We get it. It's so simple. We get it. And yet it's a hard lesson for us to learn because our heart wants to fight against it. We want to minimize our sin. But what we see here is Jesus says, don't do that. Fully understand your sin, but understand that when forgiven by me, you have so much to love. You will not love God more by mentally shrinking your debt. But you will certainly love your neighbor less by doing that. You will not love God more by mentally shrinking your debt, but you will certainly love your neighbor less because of it. And that's what Simon does. If we don't understand the depth of our sin, we don't understand our Savior, and we don't understand his love, and are thus left with no capacity to perform such an action as this woman. Someone whose heart's not fully engaged would never do what this woman does. But someone whose heart truly sees their forgiveness, the depth of their sin, does this thing. Loves the Lord Jesus Christ. She proves true Jesus' parable. She showed great love because of what she's been forgiven. And this is very instructive to us. Perhaps you are here struggling with guilt. With guilt that you've asked for forgiveness for. It's, it's maybe years, years in the past, but something that still brings to you great shame and great trials. Perhaps it's something you're dealing with currently. Well, what does this tell you to do? What does this text tell you to do? Don't try to minimize it or ignore it, but use it as a way in which you draw near in love and show love to Jesus Christ himself because that debt, that guilt, is forgiven. He who has forgiven little loves little. Let's turn it, as a part of our theme, as a part of the point of the message, to a command, to a charge. Live as one who has been forgiven much. That's what we're called to do here. Live as one who's been forgiven much. Jesus is showing that this woman sees herself properly, and if we all see ourselves properly, we will see how much God has forgiven us. We don't need to sin one more time To have such a debt that we would be able to express the same love as this woman. It's not as if we need to stockpile more sin to be forgiven much. We all have plenty. But if we had a better understanding of what it is, we have a better understanding of the love of Jesus Christ and what he's done. And that's the point. In verse 47, Jesus has said to her that she's forgiven for she loved much. He's not saying there that it was her love that enabled her to be forgiven, that her love earned her forgiveness. That's not his point. Rather, what he's saying is that her faith was proven by her love. It was displayed. In fact, love is the fruit flowing from faith. Love is the fruit flowing from faith. And so when he says that, that that she is forgiven, she loved much, what it's saying is that she believes in me, she's forgiven, and look at the fruit of this love. Look at the fruit of the faith. Verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And then you see it in verse 50. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It is faith that saves. This woman with a sordid past, a reputation horrible, is placed before the Pharisee and all gathered there as a saint of a higher quality than they, one who truly believes, who loves, and went as far as she could go to show that love to Jesus. Proud sinners are always able to pass over their sin very quickly. Perhaps there will be a time of repentance Maybe some displays of that repentance and grief. But proud sinners go very quickly from the confessional to the judge's chair. And it results in a time in which there seemed to be no learning of the lesson of what you were forgiven. And it shows that you truly didn't grasp it. If you just, if you just put enough time in to show that you're forgiven or, or were sorry for what you did, and then you go immediately back to just judging others and showing pride, did you learn this lesson? And the answer is no. And on a certain level, we, we all do that. That's why we learn this lesson every day of our lives and must learn this lesson every day of our lives. But for some of us, we need to hear that because we don't get it. That if we just move right from, from, yes, I'm sorry, to now I judge, to now I count myself as better, you don't get the gospel you don't get the love of Jesus Christ. Ask yourself: Do I love? Do I lack love for God and neighbor? If yes, then I need to ask Him to help me understand my debt. You need to be able to see your sin more clearly, because it's wretched. There's not one soul here who couldn't be described as this woman was. A woman of the city, a man of the city, a sinner, a man or a woman whose sins were many. It's actually part of sanctification that we see the clarity of our sin. That doesn't overwhelm, but as Jesus' point is here, it makes us love him all the more. Not only does this show the the love that we are to have for a sinner, the, the love that we have for Christ, it also shows the identity of Jesus Christ himself. And as well, the fact that those at the party don't get it. They still question among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? The woman gets it, they don't. Jesus proves that he is indeed a prophet here. Simon had had said, well, if he would know who this woman was, he'd be a prophet, and he did. He even proves that prophetic office even more by knowing what Simon was thinking and teaching Simon according to a lesson that Simon didn't utter. But he also proves that he's more than a prophet here because he forgave her sin and had the authority to do it. Don't you love the portrait of our Savior here, which is reflected by this display of the woman What do I mean by that? Simon would have wrenched her wrist away, pushed her away, and said, Get away from me, you sinner. You don't even read of Jesus doing anything like that. He allows her to come and display this love. He doesn't turn her away. And then actually goes and defends her in front of everyone there. What a compassionate Savior we have. The only one who would have a right to look at someone else and say, get away from me, you sinner, is one who doesn't. He doesn't do that. In fact, he forgives and tells this woman, go in what? Peace. Peace is is greater... Then, fare thee well. Have a good day. Go in peace. She knows peace with God. She knows peace with the Son. And her sinful past is gone. Doesn't even matter anymore. What a picture of our Savior. And that's why we also read the the three verses of chapter 8. Look who's in his company. These women, some of whom had been demon-possessed, some of whom were in a Gentile court, and Jesus didn't turn them away. This is the church. We are the church. The poor that Jesus brings in, the poor that Jesus loves. And so, learn the lesson, people of God. He who is forgiven little loves little. Live as one who has been forgiven much. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you having witnessed a beautiful picture from your word of not only an expression of saintly love, but the expression of your own love towards your saints and towards your people. We see the fruit of faith here, and we ask, Lord, that we would have this fruit of faith. Though you're no longer here bodily, though we cannot come before you and wash your feet or do acts of devotion towards you in this way, In that physical way, we certainly can towards your people and to to the lost. We certainly can show the love we have for you towards our neighbor. And we can certainly show this love for you spiritually through our devotion towards you. And that it would be every time we come before you in prayer, every time we sit down and open our Bibles for devotions, every time we gather for worship, it would be to enact what this woman did— to come before you and show love and honor towards you, that we would like to declare before the whole world what Jesus has done for us and we aren't afraid to, to announce our, our, our shame and be scorned by the world to do it, that we wouldn't be afraid to bring all of our wealth and, and use it for this purpose, that we wouldn't be afraid to show our emotions for you. Lord, we pray that you would work this in our hearts, that we would be those who see our debt and thus love greatly. We ask this in your name. Amen.